Uh, if you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 4. We began chapter 4 last week. We looked at verses 1 through 13. And so our task this morning is to uh, look at 14 through 30. All right, Luke 4, 14 through 30. This will be on Scripture Journal, page 32, if you have one of those. If you don't have one, you want one, uh, feel free on the back of uh, the worship center, these two round tables, and in uh, the foyer there, grab you a copy. That'll be our gift to you. Bring that every time you come as we work through this uh, gospel. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well for you to follow along there. Um, If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. Luke chapter 4, starting verse 14. God's Word says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Amen. It's God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Many of you might be familiar with Amazon's in-home assistant known as Alexa. Maybe you even own one. Um, If you don't know about Alexa, it's basically a speaker that is connected to the internet that sits in your house and is always listening to you. Okay, it's what 1984 warned us about. So that you can speak into it, right? And you can say things like, hey Alexa, play some music. Or, hey Alexa, what's the capital of Liechtenstein? Or, hey Alexa, what Nicolas Cage movies are available for streaming? And Alexa will hear you and respond. You can you can ask Alexa virtually anything, okay? And she will answer with some info from Google or Wikipedia or other places on the internet. Well, a few years ago, there was a minor hubbub online for, from some Christians who were angry with Alexa. And they were angry at an inanimate object 
that spies on you, okay? Well, what happened was a man recorded a video where he asked Alexa, who is who's Buddha? Who is Buddha? And Alexa told him. Then he asked, who is Allah? And Alexa told him. Then he asked who he was. And Alexa told him. But then he asked, who is Jesus? And Alexa didn't have an answer. She said things like, sorry, I don't know how to help with that. And sorry, I'm not sure how to help. And so because of this, a bunch of Christians on the internet, can you imagine Christians on the internet getting angry? No way. And they got angry and they wrote blogs and social media posts about how wrong it was for Alexa not to know the answer to who is Jesus. And in our age of outrage, it's no surprise that this upsets some people, right? But our zeal should be less directed to an inanimate object seeming ignorance and more aimed at how we answer the question, who Jesus is. It doesn't matter what Alexa says. It matters what you say. And it matters what your neighbors say. Who is Jesus? This is the most important question in the history of the universe. The answer to this question is a matter of where each human will spend their eternity. The answer to that question will inform how every person lives their lives day to day, even moment by moment. And it is the question that Luke wants to answer for us in this section that we've begun today. That runs all the way to chapter 9, where the question is plainly asked by then, by Jesus to his disciples who do you say I am? What we have in our text this morning is the beginning of the answer to the question, who is Jesus? It's a matter of his identity, his mission, his reason for coming to earth and taking on flesh. And it confronts us with the fact that we must respond. And we will. But there's no neutral response available. You either reject him, as we see here, or you submit to him and he upends your life. And his mission becomes your mission. Here in the text before us, we see a summary of Jesus' ministry in 14 and 15. So if you were the writing in Bible or scripture journal type, I encourage you to circle 14 and 15. This acts from Luke as a summary statement. It is a representative sample of Jesus' ministry. Okay, And that's what this scene from 14 to 30 does. It's, it's a paradigm of Jesus' ministry going forward. We see who the gospel is for and how people respond to it and Jesus. So in our time together, let's simply just walk through this text. I have points today. Okay, we're just going to walk through this text and see what God has for us. Okay, We must first note that the scene is not chronologically the first thing that Jesus does in his ministry. Okay, We see from verse 23 that Jesus has been doing ministry in Capernaum. And in verses 14 and 15, that his fame had already begun to spread in the region by the time that he went to uh, a synagogue in Nazareth. Luke is less concerned, and we must note this for the rest of the gospel, with chronology. And is more concerned with purposefully placing events to teach us important lessons about Jesus and the kingdom. (coughs) So here, Luke gives us a scene in which Jesus tells of the purpose of his coming to earth and him being rejected to show us important things that will come in this gospel. Namely, that Jesus comes for the most marginalized of people, and that his life will not only be full of rejection, but will end that way. 
So Luke tells us that Jesus comes home to Nazareth where he was raised and he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, which was his custom. Did you notice that? Luke mentions that. He wants us to know that Jesus is faithful and follows the law to the letter. He perfectly obeys and embodies faithfulness, unlike Adam and Israel before him, as we have seen previously. So he stands up, he goes in front, and he gets the scroll, and he reads from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and Isaiah 58, 6, okay? Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and Isaiah 58, 6. From this passage, Jesus is telling them and us for whom he has come. Because he reads that, those verses, and then he applies it to himself, doesn't he? In verse 21, he says, this is about me. This, this is being fulfilled right now. Like, that's the content of his sermon, right? Don't you wish I preached one-sentence sermons? He reads from Isaiah. He says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he sits down, and that's it. And the Spirit, says Jesus, is upon me in order that I might proclaim the good news. This is good news, right? This is not good suggestions or good advice. This is good news that Jesus brings. Indeed, this is good news that Jesus embodies. The good news is a person, and his name is Jesus, and he's been anointed by the Holy Spirit and is thus God's Christ. And what is that good news? The good news is that he has come to rescue the unable. He has come to save those who can't save themselves and know it. And this is good news that separates Jesus and Christianity from every religion in the world, right? Muhammad says, climb the ladder of deeds to get to Allah. Krishna says the same thing. So does Buddha and every other religion. Even secularism says that. They all, they all say, do these things and you'll be saved. Do these things and you'll be fulfilled. Do these things and you'll be accepted by God and man. They might be good advice, but they aren't good news. There's no relief in those, is there? There's no salvation in good advice. You know, this past Tuesday was the Chinese New Year. Were you guys aware of that? Did you guys celebrate accordingly? Well, have you ever heard the myth of how it all got started? According to legend, there was a beast named uh, Nian who would come every New Year and would eat villagers, okay, especially children. One year, the villagers decided to hide. Do you ever notice some of these myths, how they get started? Always kids get eaten, right? What's up with that? Well, one year, the villagers decide to hide from Neon except for one old man, okay? And he, he goes out to get revenge on Neon while he is wearing red and he's armed with fireworks, okay? So the next day, the villagers come out and find nothing in the village was destroyed by Neon, so they concluded the old man was their savior. But... While he saved them that night, guess what? Every year since that day, they have decorated in red and they have set off fireworks to keep Nian away. So did the old man really save him? Not really, since they have to continue to do things in order to be saved, to continue to be saved. Jesus didn't like that. Jesus saves once and for all because he came to preach the good news of salvation which is the proclamation of who he is and what he has done. It is not the message of what we must do on our own in order to curry God's favor. 
And with that truth is the uncomfortable and confronting truth that we are incapable of pleasing God by our own devices. But Jesus says, his good news is for who? He gives four types of people who he came to save, doesn't he? Which stress that one must be needy and know it to get what he offers. Number one, the poor. Number two, the prisoner. Number three, the blind. And number four, the oppressed. The poor, the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed. These are who Jesus says explicitly, this is who I came to save. We might ask, when we read that, what does Jesus mean when he said poor, captives, blind, and oppressed? Did he mean spiritually poor and captive and blind and oppressed? Or literally poor, captive, blind, and oppressed? Well, if the question is, does he mean spiritual or literal, you know what the answer is? Yes. He means both. You know, people want to come to this and they want to separate these things. They are not separate. We ought not make what Jesus says here either only spiritual or only literal. It's both. He really did mean literally poor, literally oppressed, literally bound, and literally blind. But he also means spiritually poor and spiritually oppressed and spiritually bound and spiritually blind. What does poor mean? Poor, as one, one of my professors put it, means without status before God and men, outcasts. Jesus came for society's outcasts. He came for the people on the margins. He came for those without status and those who the world does not esteem. That's what Luke has shown us from chapter 1 and will continue to show us through chapter 24. But why the poor and the captive and bound and oppressed? Well, for one, because God has always and will always advocate for the outcast and those on the margins of society. Do you know that? This is who God is. Tim Chester says, God is the God who upholds the cause of the oppressed, who provides for the poor, liberates the prisoner, he sustains the marginalized and the vulnerable. We must see this is a theological truth about the character of God. He cares deeply about the most vulnerable in society, and he takes exception with their mistreatment or exploitation. Chester later tells of a time when Jim Wallace had a seminary student who had, he took an old Bible, and he cut out every reference to the poor with a pair of scissors. When the seminarian was finished, says Wallace, that old Bible hung in threads. It wouldn't hold together. It fell apart in our hands. Yet, this, says Wallace, is our Bible, full of holes from all we have cut out. So truly, what Jesus says here should be a surprise to no one who was familiar with their Old Testament. Indeed, that's precisely where his quote comes from, right? But further, the reason Jesus says that poor, blind, captive are the targets of the gospel is because those on the margins are more likely to be in a position to receive the message of the gospel of grace than those who are wealthy and have a good in this life. Jesus, you know, he'll later say that it's easier to shove a camel. You guys know this reference, right? To shove a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved because they're in a position where they don't think they need anything. 
including salvation, especially a salvation that requires giving up self for the king and others, which is the only salvation Jesus provides. Remember, it isn't the poor are inherently more pious or righteous than the rich. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, yes? All need salvation equally. Let's get that straight. It's that when you are poor and needy, you're more likely to admit that fact. When you live knowing that survival rests on things outside of yourself, that you can't do it on your own, and you can admit that, then coming to a place of admitting that salvation must come from outside of yourself is not that far a leap. A leap. There's a very good reason that the Bible warns of excessive earthly treasures over and over again. Am I out to lunch when I say the Bible does this? You guys know it does, right? Not because having stuff is inherently sinful or wrong, but because it breeds self-sufficiency. And that's the enemy of the gospel. The Bible warns repeatedly of greed, not because money itself is evil, it's an inanimate object, but because of what having excessive things can do to our heart. You could easily think you own things when all along they actually own you. This is why the Bible warns over and over of greed, but who thinks they're guilty of that? And there's the rub, right? <laughs> who thinks they're greedy, truly? There's this great book written by Mesh McConnell and Mike McKinley called Church in Hard Places. And this is, uh, this is shown rather clearly. Mez is from Scotland, and he started a church planting network called 20 Schemes, uh, which what they do is they plant churches in the poorest uh, areas of Scotland. Okay, they intentionally go to these poor areas and they plant these schemes. In the in these schemes, listen to what he said in the introduction. That goes to what we're talking about. He said, "I noticed that when I tell stories about ministry to the poor in Brazil and Scotland to other pastors, they often pat me on the back and say something like, "Well done, mate. I couldn't do what you do. It sounds so hard." Don't get me wrong. He says, "I appreciate the sentiment, and it's nice to get a pat on the back once in a while." But here's the dilemma. In some ways, it's not hard at all. I would even say living and working among the poor could be very easy. Sometimes I feel like I need to come out officially as a pastoral fraud and say to my friends pastoring in wealthier areas, well done to you, mate. Yours is the harder ministry. Then he says this, when I listen to pastors battling away around Europe and states and well-off areas, I break out in a cold sweat. How do you evangelize in an area where everybody has a decent paying job, a nice place to live, and possible a car or two in the driveway? How do you talk to a guy who feels no need for Christ because he's distracted by his materialism? In the Scottish schemes where I now pastor, I can have a conversation about Jesus any day of the week. I could call a man a sinner, and he will probably agree. I rarely meet atheists among the poor. This illustrates precisely why Jesus says what he does here and elsewhere about earthly riches and the poor. But what Jesus is saying is not that the rich can't be saved, right? But it does mean they have a further way to go to get to a place of humility to admit their spiritual bankruptcy and their neediness of heart to get the gospel of Christ. You must come to a place where you say, I am poor in spirit and I can't make myself rich. I am captive to my sin and can't secure my release. I am blind to my sinfulness and the beauty of God. I am in need of God's forgiveness and his absorbing of my debt. Only then can you receive the gospel. Only then is it good news. 
And it truly is good news. It's good news that there's hope for the poor in the spirit, isn't it? It's good news that there's freedom to those enslaved by sin. It's good news that the things of God and the all-surpassing beauty of this glorious Christ can be illuminated to our darkened hearts. Is that not good news? You know, something else interesting is going on in the citation that Jesus reads. Jesus leaves something off. I want you to look down at Luke, and I'm going to read you what Isaiah 61, 1 through 2 says, okay? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. You hear what Jesus left out? He left out the bit about the day of God's wrath, didn't he? He didn't say that. He left it off on purpose. Why would he leave that out? It's because he has come, and he says in John 3, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He doesn't talk about wrath being poured out in this instance because it is he himself who will absorb the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. He will take their condemnation. He will take your condemnation. He will take my condemnation. That's the grace of God to the poor and weak. Because to get grace, no matter what you have by way of earthly possessions, you must admit, I deserve God's wrath. I deserve the vengeance of God. And the cross, it looms large even here. Jesus knows there's a time for the vengeance of the Lord, but not right now. That comes at the end of the age, which he has inaugurated. What he's saying here is that he has come to offer grace to the empty and hungry, not to condemn them. Because those who come to Jesus with their nothing, he will take on himself the vengeance of the Lord. But to get that, don't you see? You have to come to him and bring your neediness. You have to bring your poverty. You have to bring your empty hands and say to him, this is all I have. But most people can't do that because they're clinging to other things and they refuse to let them go. They want to come before God and man with their hands full of their stuff and their record and their deeds. And they're captive, but they don't mind the chains. They're blind, but they don't mind the darkness. Spiritually poor, but fancy themselves as wealthy, but without the humility to say, before a holy God, I am poor, they will remain lost. What about you, friend? Do you see your need of Jesus? Do you see your need of grace? Do you see your bankruptcy before this holy God? Do you see that no matter how much you own, no matter how many people know your name, what neighborhood you live in, besides your bank account, outside of Christ, you are poor. And if so, do you remind yourself of that daily? Make it your daily work, friend, because it will keep you from responding the way we see next. You see, in light of all this, 
how the people respond to Jesus' message should not surprise us. We're told in verse 22 that the people marveled, right? Which is a fairly positive response, but it won't last because they're skeptical, aren't they? They really don't know what to do. They questioned and they said, isn't that Joseph's son? Like, isn't that the kid that used to run around here playing with other kids in the town? Like, doesn't his dad make, like, coffee tables and doors? In other words, they're wondering who, who this guy from a common family thinks he is. And they want to know how someone from such humble means can make the claims that he's making. And Jesus is discerning their hearts, says what he does in verse 23. He knows what they want. They want him to do some miracle in their midst to prove himself to them, and they want him to play favorites. Shouldn't he do what he, we've heard he has done elsewhere here, where he's from, among his own people? Bless you. But Jesus will not play their silly game and instead some something that serves to offend them even more. <clears throat> See, as he's saying that the good news he brings in fulfilling the Old Testament is for the outcasts of society wasn't bad enough. He now calls himself a prophet and anticipates that they will not accept him. Doesn't he say that? But, but then he offers two examples from the book of Kings of Elijah and Elisha, which really makes them mad. So what's so offensive about the examples? Well, Jesus chooses two examples from the lowest point in Israel's history to draw from and compare them to. The first example, Elijah ministering during the three-plus-year drought in Israel. But, you know, instead of ministering to the Israelite widows, which there were plenty of, as Luke notes, Elijah goes to a Gentile widow and ministers to her. See, Elijah had ministered to Israel, but was met with resentment and rejection and hostility. So you know what he did? He passes over them, and he goes to the Gentile, who is receptive. And then the second example is Elisha. Elisha could have ministered to the lepers in Israel, but like Elijah was rejected, so what does he do? He bypasses Israel, goes to Naaman, who is from Syria, and you know what made that worse? Not only was Naaman a Gentile, he was the commander of the enemy army. Same lesson as Elijah then. Elisha passes over the hardened Israelites and ministers to the enemy who is the Gentile. This drives Jesus' hearers into a frenzy. But why? Jesus was saying that the Israelites had no exclusive claim on him. That God deals graciously with outcasts like the Gentiles and even the enemies of God. And that if you're going to reject him, he'll simply go to those who won't reject his proclamation of the good news. They thought they should be, as insiders, the first and primary recipients of salvation, but they can't admit they're poor. So Jesus just bypasses them and takes the gospel to the outsiders. So the crowd tries to seize Jesus so that they can do what? Kill him. Throw him off the cliff. That's, that's some response, isn't it? And do you see the irony do you guys see the irony here? They're proving Jesus' point. Jesus said a prophet isn't welcome in his own hometown, and then his own hometown tried to kill him. He says that people like them won't respond well to the gospel, and then what happens? They respond poorly to the gospel. They don't see their need. They don't see themselves as poor. And further, they don't want Jesus. Verse 23 showed us that they just want his stuff. Right? They want his benefits, not him. They don't him, they want his miracles. They want to benefit from him. They don't so much care about his person. And here's one of the scariest parts of this story. Here's one of the scariest parts of this story. Who rejects Jesus? 
the pious, the righteous, the religious. It's not the outcast and notorious sinner, is it? The, the people who reject Jesus here are people who attend synagogue every Saturday. And they read their Bibles. And they knew their Bibles. And they give to the synagogue coffers. And they do their religious duties. And they're good citizens. And they're respected in the community. Do you see? This is a truth we forget. And that's that self-righteousness will keep you out of the kingdom of God just as much as overt sin will. When Lincoln Duncan preached this passage, this is what he said. He said, maybe you wouldn't grab Jesus today and take him to the outskirts of town and try to kill him if he were here preaching. But if Jesus is meddling in your heart and showing you your sin and you reject his conviction, you're no different from that crowd that tried to kill him that day. There are a lot of people that are working really hard to believe that they're free when they're not. Some people are so committed to acting as if they're free when they know they're not that they're ready to kill people who tell them they're not free. And that's what happened to Jesus. See, Jesus hears, though religious, though externally pious, though devout, did not see their need for the gospel, did they? Didn't see their need for Jesus. They, they weren't poor enough. Uh, they, they had so much that they couldn't admit that they really had nothing. Isn't that ironic? And that's the thing, isn't it? Relying on religious deeds or record or status or stuff is the self-righteousness that will keep one out of the kingdom of Christ. You could, you could indeed be very religious. You could read your Bible. You come to church. You could give. You could serve. You could be an upstanding citizen who pays their taxes and votes, is fair in business, and is reputable and nice and friendly, and still go to hell. Because none of those things will save you, will they? And, and here's the thing. None of those things I just said are bad. In fact, they're good. They're good things. Luke holds up Jesus as an example because he goes to the synagogue, right? As it was his custom. Because that's a good and right thing. But none of those good things are salvific things. So why would we put our trust in them? There are people who were pastors who are currently in hell. There, there are people who had seminary degrees and could write systematic theologies and are in hell. And there are people who are deacons and Sunday school teachers in their churches and people with good church attendance records and who are well thought of in the community and were nice to their friends and their neighbors and kids who are eternally separated from Christ. Why? Because they placed their trust somewhere else. Somewhere that wasn't Jesus and his righteousness. Like the people in the example in the Sermon on the Mount who came to Jesus and what they say? Didn't we? And didn't we? And didn't we? They trusted in the wrong things. They had too much to realize they had nothing without Jesus because he's everything. I don't know if the name Donald Gray Barnhouse is familiar to any of you. Anybody? Donald Gray Barnhouse? No? Not a one? Cool. He was a Presbyterian minister. And his weekly sermons were broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Well, on one occasion, Barnhouse asked this, okay? What would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? 
It, like he was allowed to have complete control of one city, do whatever he wanted. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, for example, where Barnhouse ministered, it would look like this. All of the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. You see his point? See, Satan doesn't mind if you and I are religious. And he doesn't mind if we as a church exist. He doesn't mind if we do religious duty and are polite. He doesn't even mind if FBC is busy with activity and everyone is happy. As long as all of that is Christless. As long as Jesus isn't the focus and the hero, it's no problem at all. Because if it's Christless, then it isn't a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Only when we come to a place of desperate clinging to Jesus will we be saved. Only when we make Jesus the center and purpose of our existence will we be a threat to Satan and his band of jabronis. Sad truth is, oftentimes, it's the most religious who reject Jesus' message most violently of all. I've seen it and you've seen it. And this is an indication that the gospel hasn't truly gripped their hearts. 19th century bishop J.C. Ryle said this of Luke 4. He said, There are thousands of people in Christian churches in little better state of mind than our Lord's hearers in Nazareth. There are thousands who listen regularly to the preaching of the gospel and admire it while they listen. We do not dispute the truth of what they hear. They even feel kind of intellectual pleasure in hearing a good and powerful sermon. But their religion never goes beyond this point. Their sermon hearing does not prevent them living a life of thoughtlessness, worldliness, and sin. Friend, I wonder, where is your trust right now? Where is it right now? Is it in your deeds? Is it in your religious record? Is it, is, is it in your trust that you are a nice and good person? Is it in your wealth or status or reputation? Or is it in Christ alone? Have you recognized that you are needy and weak? but that Jesus freely gives and is mighty, so you don't have to be strong. You just need to trust in him. Maybe you've been trusting for so long on your own goodness and morality and religious record that you realize you have not trusted Jesus. That, that you've never come to him with your poverty and you feel the weight of your sin or bondage right now. Repent. Call on Jesus' name. He'll be your wrath-bearing all in all. But now... To you, friend, who has trusted truly in Christ, you've admitted your spiritual poverty and your captivity and your blindness. You've given him your allegiance. I want to ask you this, okay? Are you willing to do ministry the way that Jesus did? That's a big question, isn't it? Are you willing to do ministry the way that Jesus did? Are you willing to be rejected by men? Are you willing for people to hate you? Are you willing to minister to the poor and the marginalized? Are you willing to do ministry in the power of God and not the power of man? You know, what was Jesus' ministry like? 
What was it like? It was done in the power of the Holy Spirit, wasn't it? I mean, he's the God-man, right? Like pre-existent creator God, member of the Trinity, and yet he does ministry in the power of the Spirit, doesn't he? And Luke plainly shows this to us, right? We've been handed the greatest power in the universe, the indwelling presence of God. The same Holy Spirit that was with Jesus is with us if we give our allegiance to him. This means that what we should be aiming for as a church are things that we can't accomplish without God. Not, not reliance and fear of man, but reliance on God and a holy fear of him that says, I will risk and I will go and I will be obedient to his word. And don't you think it's fair to say that Jesus' ministry was for the poor? You think that's fair to say? So shouldn't that be a big part of our ministry too? Daryl Box says the church's call is but an extension of Jesus' mission. The fulfillment he proclaims is part of the fulfillment that the church proclaims. Values reflected in this mission should be reflected in the church's outreach. But now ask yourself this, okay? When was the last time you thought about the poor? When was the last time your zeal for ministry had the poor as the target? Friend, is it possible that we've forsaken this call to emulate our Lord and minister to the poor? To people who could provide us with nothing? In return, Jesus came for the poor. He valued them body and soul. He loved them when no one else would. And so shouldn't we emulate that? You know that a third of our city and county is below the poverty line? And they probably feel unseen, don't you think? Jesus sees them, doesn't he? But who will tell them that? Shouldn't it be us? You know, several years ago, I came across an article from Huffington Post, and it was entitled, People Disguised as Homeless Ignored by Loved Ones on the Street. The first line of the article was this, okay? If a family member posed as a homeless person, would you recognize him or her? The author goes on. That's the question a new campaign called Make Them Visible is asking. In a video produced for the New York City's rescue mission, several people come face-to-face -face with their relatives and significant others dressed as homeless people. However, get this, not a single participant recognized their mother, brother, or wife. There's only one person that didn't make it into film because they couldn't handle the fact that they walked by their family. But it happened every time. Not a one. This jarring social experiment staged near the mission shelter shows just how invisible the poor and homeless are to pedestrians on the street. Michelle Tolson, who's the director of public relations for the New York City Mission, said in the story, we don't look at them. We don't take a second look. It's no wonder they feel unseen. Do you see them? Do I? What if the least celebrated in our society don't know that Jesus loves them? Who's going to tell them? 
who's going to say to them, Jesus loves you, and I love you, and I don't want anything from you. In fact, I want to give you something knowing you could do nothing to benefit me. Who's doing that? Shouldn't it be us? Shouldn't it be the redeemed of God who have the Holy Spirit, who've encountered the glorious, gracious Christ? Shouldn't it be us since we've come to Christ with our empty hands and said, I need you and I have nothing. Save me. I can't save myself. And he saved us. Shouldn't we, the emissaries of King Jesus, be the first to shed our self-advocacy and inward focus and find satisfaction in Christ and then look out at a community in darkness and see the poor who are made in the image of God and say, let's go there. Shouldn't it be us? You know, I just have to say, I know it's a safe place. I could admit this. I, I've been under heavy conviction this week because I know this. Like, I've preached this. And I've read this, and I've studied this, and I've known that God cares for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed and abused and wounded and neglected, and I've known that Jesus comes for the least and the last and the lost, and what have I done? And I know I'm supposed to lead you too, and yet have I? And I look at the history of our church, and I'm like, man, we spend so much time zealously pursuing stuff for us. How many hours of deacons meetings that I've been in the midst of and, and various other meetings inside and outside the church have been spent on zealously talking about and advocating about and petitioning for our comfort and our preferences. Well, there are people within a five-minute drive who don't know where their food will come from tomorrow. And they don't know that Jesus loves them. I mean, who should tell them that Jesus loves them and sees them? Shouldn't it be us? You know, Puritan John Owen said this, churches and their members ought to think of caring for the poor is an eminent grace and an excellent duty. For Christ is glorified and the gospel is honored when we care for the poor. Many people consider it unspiritual or something that should be spontaneous rather than organized. Many think it should not be central to the work of the church, but in fact, it is one of the priorities of Christian communities because it is the main way we show the gospel grace of love. And the gospel compels us to reach the least and the last. The gospel tells us not to sit and hope they'll come to us, but that we should go to them. The gospel compels us to risk, to set aside our wants and desires to see people the way God sees them and to reach them with the same love that we proclaim every Sunday. And you know what? Maybe they'll reject us. And maybe others will look at First Baptist and say, how foolish and how strange. Maybe we'll even have trepidations and wonder if it's worth it. Wonder if there aren't things we could be doing instead. Wonder, what about us? But isn't it worth the risk? Jesus' townspeople tried to kill him. And he knew that they would. And he went anyway. 
and he boldly proclaimed, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor and the captive and the blind. And then after he died for his enemies and rose again victoriously, he founded the church and he said, as I have gone, you go. As I have done, you do. As I have risked, you risk. You know, Puritan Jonathan Edwards, he wrote about this topic, and he anticipated that people would object, primarily for two reasons, to ministering to the poor. And this is what he said. He said, I want to help this person because, this is one of the objections, I don't want to help this person because he's an ill temper and ungrateful spirit. And the other, I think this person brought on their own poverty by their own fault. Tim Keller adds this, this is an abiding problem with helping the poor. We all want to help kind-hearted, upright people whose poverty came on without any contribution from them and who will respond to our aid with gratitude and joy. Frankly, almost no one like that exists. You know what Edwards appealed to in response to those objections? The gospel. He said this, Christ loved us, was kind to us, was willing to relieve us, though we were evil and hateful of an evil disposition, not deserving of any good. So we should be willing to be kind to those who are of ill disposition and are very undeserving. If they are come to want by a vicious idleness, yet we are not thereby excused from all obligations to relieve them unless they continue in those vices. If they continue not in those vices, the rules of the gospel direct us to forgive. For Christ, he says, hath loved us, pitied us, greatly laid out himself to relieve us from that want and misery which we brought on ourselves by our own folly and wickedness. We foolishly and perversely threw away those riches with which we were provided upon which we might have lived and been happy to all eternity. The gospel compels us, so we go. And I have to admit, I don't even know what all this would entail which is why I need your help. You live and move in this community. You know, I, want you, I want you to think, what are some tangible ways that FBC can show the love of Christ and be the light of the gospel to the poorest among us? I need you for this. I want to hear your ideas. I want you to write them down. Talk to one another in your life group or other ministry area, in women's ministry, in deacons meetings. Brainstorm and share. Think of the way God has uniquely gifted you and where he has placed you in your work and your neighborhood and relationships and your play and pray that God would show you how you can leverage that to reach the least and the last. We can't do everything. But we can do something in light of the gospel to take up the mission of Christ to reach the poor and the marginalized and the immigrant and the refugee and the oppressed and the unseen with the same gospel that we have tasted and enjoyed. This is Jesus' mission. And it's ours too. The question is, do we hear the cries of those who are suffering? God hears them. Do we? Have we attuned our ears and softened our hearts to hear? Jesus certainly did. We are commanded to feed the hungry, visit the prisoner, clothe the naked, bring peace and good news to the chaos. But will we do it? What we need to be asking is, what are the cries of the poor in our town? Do we hear the cries of the most vulnerable, the unborn in the womb, the orphan, unemployed, sick, elderly? How can we minister to them? How can we bring good news to the poor in the likeness of our sacrificing humble Lord? 
Tim Chester in his book, Good News to the Poor, says this. We cannot eradicate poverty within history. Our achievements may be reversed and undone, but we still have an obligation to care for the poor as we reflect the character of God, live under the reign of God, and respond to the grace of God. Proclamation will be central to Christian involvement with the poor because the greatest need of the poor, along with all people, is to be reconciled with God through the gospel. But the message we proclaim is best understood in the context of loving actions and loving community. We might see reform in our society. We might not. The important thing is for the church to witness to the coming liberation of God. We're called to be the jubilee community in which the poor are welcome, included, and strengthened. We are the place on earth where God's future can be seen.